Hello and welcome to the For the Win podcast. I'm Ted Bird, joined on the line today by my coworker, recently deemed most reasonable by this very show while he was not even on it. That's Charles Curtis. I love that you're talking about me off the air. That's uh, another sign. You know, I was a friend of the show. I'm most no, reasonable. We, I mean, it was on the air. I believe uh, Hemel brought up a point you made, or she brought up a, a, a hot take of sorts that was on the site. And I said, who wrote it? And she said, Charles. And I said, okay, then I buy it. Wow. They, so I'm convinced people. What was the take now? Now I we have to talk about this for a second. I don't remember. I suspect... Wow. Uh, oh, I, th- I believe it was about Tiger. I don't, I don't remember what, exactly what you said about Tiger, but I think it had something to do with Tiger. Is oh, interesting. Right? Okay. Did you have a Tiger yeah. Woods take? Uh, yeah, uh, maybe. I, uh, whatever it was, it was, it was reasonable, yeah. uh, as you say. So, That's you know, I'm glad you, I'm glad you buy in. None of this Luke nonsense for us. We are <laughs> Charles today. Uh, Luke isn't even in the office, so I couldn't uh, have him on. Instead, we have our man Charles. And we have five questions we're going to discuss. Uh, why don't you get us started? Sure. Well, obviously, we're, we're, we're taping this on a Tuesday, so uh, uh, the NBA Finals are in full swing. And I've been pondering this for the last, I don't know, I want to say three days. Even though the Finals are so far from gone, uh, last year the Warriors went up 2 nothing on the Cavs in the series, and the Cavs ended up winning the series. So it's early to be talking about this, but I'm still... This is a podcast. We can talk about whatever we want. I just want to debate this because it's something I might write later on. And I need to kind of get my head around it and be reasonable about it, of course. Mm-hmm. So the question I have is if the Warriors end up sweeping the Cavs or if they just win the series outright and blow out, you know, they've already sort of won two games handily. Is it bad for basketball, the super team? You know, because everyone's talking about the Warriors and how last year, you know, they didn't have Kevin Durant, obviously, and they, you know, nearly won that series. And this year they've got one of the top three best players in basketball, and they're blowing the roof off uh, off, off their, their home, winning these two games handily. And have they, have they not lost a game in the playoffs yet? No, they have not. They've swept yeah. every every game, yeah. And, and that would be insane and one of those feats that you would say is amazing. And I keep going back and forth because I keep saying to myself, one, like – I loved watching the Bulls in the 90s, um, and I loved watching that team dominate because you always were like, well, who's going to take them down? And as a Knicks fan, I always was like, oh, come on, like, you know, just once can we just take down Jordan? And the only time when he wasn't there. Right. Um, and and, and th- then the other side of the coin is, but wait, like, the Jordan teams weren't built that way. It was a different time in basketball. And I keep thinking to myself, like, there's, you know, there are all these rules in place to try to get NBA players to stay with their teams by offering them, like, more money. Uh, to stay, but you know, I keep wondering, like, what is it, like, what does it do for basketball if they keep just steamrolling teams? And the playoffs have been god awful. Basically, there's only been like two really decent, halfway decent series. So, you know, is it good that this team is 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 not great? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, I have a lot of them. I mean, I'd, I'd say the first thing is that remember that like we have spent the entire last calendar year joking about the fact that the Warriors went up big in the NBA Finals and wound up losing it to the Cavaliers. So I would just, like, pump the brake. And I feel like it's happening again. Like, now, like, I feel like, again, the sort of the standard 
rhetoric online is like, oh, well, of course the Warriors are going to sweep this series. And I get that, obviously, they have Durant now. And so, in theory, it's a it's a better team, even if they didn't win as many games in the regular season. Uh, they've looked as good as any basketball team probably ever could in the postseason. But I, I want to see the rest of this finals first, right? Because I'm not, yeah. I'm not one to count out LeBron James until the buzzer the final buzzer sounds you know and that's really that's really the way to go you know you can't count out lebron and he's he's played his you know his at his near best and uh, the problem i think is he doesn't have enough help you know Kyrie irving has been playing really well but then they've got this sort of the talent drop off and jr smith hasn't shown up in, in, as much as he shouldn't and the thing with the warriors is is they have the same team they did last year but they're replacing a very good player with one of the best players and that's such a huge difference maker when you know it was amazing to watch game one where they they would they would go on these fast breaks and Kevin Durant would be streaking down the court and the the Cavs defense would start marking up shooters leaving this giant gaping hole for Kevin Durant to drive to and slam and it happened like three or four times in the first half and you're sitting there going well you know I get it I get why they're marking up shooters because that's what the Warriors do so it's it's sort of pick your poison with this team and it's just it's incredible to watch it's it's watching an all-star game sometimes with, with this team I would say so. Here's my here's my take, and this is sort of generated from the seat of my pants here. But that's that's what the internet is all about, and that's what the podcast format, I believe, is. I would say that the Warriors, if they go on and win this, right, and especially if they win this in four games, that's bad for the NBA in 2017. But I would say long term. That's good for I think that long term that's good right like if you you mentioned the Jordan era Bulls and that was a a completely dominant team and I believe also an era in which basketball became way way more popular um I think that it makes them I think the Warriors have seemed like a very likable very much a good guy team until this season and I think you know the combination of adding Durant putting Durant on a team that was already great and then you know just running roughshod over the rest of the league in the postseason makes them the target and so I think maybe it makes next season and especially next season's playoffs a little bit more compelling like you said because then you start thinking about like okay which which team can be the giant killer and I don't you know I don't think the Warriors, if even if they win the next two games, I don't think you can expect any team to go out and do it again next year and go 16-0 and in the playoffs again next year or whatever it is. So I think at some point they will fall, and I think it'll just, you know, the bigger they come, the harder they fall is essentially what I'm saying. Uh, it'll right. be that much more exciting when it happens. Yeah, and well, the, the question, going back to the question that I asked about, you know, is it bad for, for the NBA? What I'm, I think I'm, I'm trying to go for is, like, are super teams bad you know and and signing guys and gathering them in these little clusters of amazingness but then i think like well that's just how the rules are and that's life you know like deal with it you know draft the boston celtics for example they have the number one overall pick thanks to an awful trade they made uh, the the nets made an awful trade with them years ago that gave them what would end up being the top pick in the draft and they could add a either through a trade or through that number one pick, uh, you know, an upgrade and suddenly have themselves a, a super team. And then we could, you know, really start getting somebody out of the East. Um, you know, not to say that the Cavs aren't a super team they're They've got three great players uh, on there. But but yeah, it's just they're falling short. I kind of want to just see, 
you know how these teams respond um, in the offseason. That's what's so intriguing about uh, offseasons is, is, you know, okay, what's your answer for the, the Warriors? And I keep wondering, it, are super teams bad? But, yeah, there's no solution to this uh, in, in the foreseeable future. It's just that's how it is, and, and teams are going to have to deal with it. Right. I mean, the, the thing is, if you want to compete with a super team, Build yourself a super team, right? Be the super, right. be that team. Like you, what are you supposed to say? Like, oh, sorry, like Warriors, you you can't be this good because we need to make basketball better. No, you just need to raise the bar for everyone else. It does feel like very much like a feast or famine type league. Like there are like ten really good teams and then twenty horrible. You know, just so many horrible right. teams. Like so many. I mean, like the whole. I, I don't know like how many winning teams were there in the entire Eastern Conference. It feels like very few, right? So, like, it, it's just, I don't know. It, it, I see what you're saying, and I, I get, like, I get the point that it seems almost unfair, right, to have, especially after they added Durant, right? Like, that's, come on. Come on. You had the be- one of the best teams in NBA history, regardless of losing the finals last year, and then you go out and add the second best player in the league. That does seem ridiculous, and it, but but that's Durant's choice, right? Like he, uh, you want to go play with? Uh, I don't know. I can't. I can't fault anybody. I think like you can't fault the Warriors for wanting to get better. You can't fault Durant for wanting the ring. And to me, just then, yeah, it just puts the impetus on the all the other teams in the NBA to be better. Yeah, and and I, I may add, you know, that that also, you know. You, I think there's a whole debate in general in sports about, you know, like, oh, is a team built the right way? You think about the Cubs, for example, you know, a team that that, that tore it all down, built back up and uh, things like that. And I just sometimes those debates feel silly to me because it's like, oh, come on, like, you know, who cares who they're built the right way? They want they won ring. They built it within the, the correct parameters of how a team is is OK to be built in, in any league and, uh, you know, move on, deal with it. You know, yeah, the and, point and is to win. The point is to Great. win, right? And so if that Let's requires, win, baby. Yeah. if if the best way to win in baseball, uh, at least in recent years, was tanking for a while, uh, like the, I mean, the Houston Astros are the best example. I think they got the first overall pick three years in a row. Guess what? Now the Houston Astros are, are 42 and 16 and way out in front and, and look like the best team in baseball. Uh, so it worked, right? The point is to get there however you have to get there. So I guess... I can never, I'm just never going to fault a front office in any sport for building a good team. Yeah, so the answer to that question, I think, is is I'm I'm on with uh, with no, it's not bad for basketball, uh, and I am very intrigued to see if they become like a dynasty or if they become you know the team that one at once falls apart. I don't you know something could happen or whoever you know builds the team the better way to take them down. And hey, LeBron can still do it, as you said. Yeah, that's what I'm rooting for, obviously. I think anyone who listens to the show recognizes that I'm very much rooting for LeBron James. But if, you know, yeah, I, like I said, if the Warriors w- win out, that's an incredible feat, uh, regardless of how stacked they are. And it makes them an incredible target for moving forward for every other season. Because I think it cements them as, like, a historically great team. Not that they aren't that already, but then, then you know, running, uh, sweeping. I mean, sweeping the NBA playoffs is, is insane. And, and... Then, then that draws. I think that draws a lot of attention, and it, like I said, like target right on their back. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. Let's let's get to the so the next one. The question I wanted to ask you, uh, and this is a general question. I'm not referring to my actual favorite team. I'm just referring to uh, something that seems like a common question for baseball fans uh, right around now. 
early June with the season's overperformers and underperformers sort of establishing themselves is why hasn't my favorite baseball team's manager been fired yet? Which Hmm. is, uh, again, it's something that comes up every year. And to me, it feels like anecdotally, Clubs are moving away from the in-season manager firing as a cure-all for underperformance. Do you think there's enough evidence of that? I mean, we're in June. It's kind of like I, I'm, I'm thinking about it. And I'm thinking about um, I'm trying to think of a recent team that fired its manager. Who so no, the last the last yeah. manager to get fired in season was early last year. The Braves fired Freddie Gonzalez. And no one else was fired last season during the season. Uh, and But in 2015, four managers were fired in the season. I, I, I had fired or, or resigned uh, because I think a lot of times guys aren't really resigning. Uh, there are some cases you can find, like uh, Lou Pinella resigned saying he wanted to be with his ailing mother when it was clear he wasn't coming back. That's like dating back to like 2004 or something. Right. Uh, but I, I looked through – actually, I spent this morning – uh, tallying in-season manager firings and resignations. And it's hard, it's impossible to distinguish if it's a trend or if it's just a series of coincidences. If you look back, like if you start at the beginning of, uh, you start around 2001, it feels like teams averaged, usually about four teams per season fired their manager in-season. And it has ticked downward uh, since like 2012 or so, but it's so you're dealing with such small numbers, right? It's like either two managers get fired or six managers get fired. That's there's a like a a very a whimsical margin there, right? Because it could just be you know three teams happen to have three more teams happen to have managers that had personalities that didn't jive with their with their front office. So I'm not willing to say. Uh, I'm not willing to say it's a trend statistically because I don't think that you that that's like I think you could you could make that claim, but I think it would be a wrong claim. Uh, it does kind of make sense, I think, with the way baseball has changed, especially in recent seasons. I think at this point, no front office. I feel like all 30 baseball teams have fairly smart front offices these days. I think it's really, really, really hard to get yourself into a team president or GM job without being, uh, I mean, in most cases, it's guys with econ degrees and, you know, stuff like that. But uh, even if it's not, I think at this point, you have to be uh, very, you know, thorough, thoroughly acquainted with, with tons of stats. You need to know scouting. You need to know uh, the process by which baseball teams are built like fairly thoroughly. And so I feel like with how much attention has been paid to front offices probably means very few front offices are ever entering seasons with managers they don't know to be their guys. You know, with with like old, oh, I'm just going to hire this like old-timey baseball manager without really uh, an idea if he's on board with what I'm selling. I think that teams and managers like front offices and managers are probably working closer together than ever before and i would say that my guess is that does lead to fewer in-season firings you know i'm looking at the 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 teams right now that aren't uh contending at the moment and and i'll throw one out here for you but just for the 2017 season because that's all reasonable and i'd also add that maybe everybody's you know you got these front office people who have probably read grown up 
you know, reading all the, the sort of the advanced stat stuff that suggests, and correct me if I'm wrong, right, the idea is that maybe managers don't have as much uh, decision-making or th- as much influence over a team's win-loss record as we would like to think. Is that is that actually accurate or is that not? Or Yeah, I mean, so I guess I think that the, at least my thinking, and I think that probably this extends elsewhere, but I think that a manager's actual in-game strategy makes very little difference over the course right. of the year. If you look at the best managers based on strategic decisions, if you, as best as you can calculate them, if you try to determine you know, the best from the worst, you're talking about a swing of like maybe one win or two wins over the course of a season. So I think uh, undoubtedly uh, there's value in the job of the manager. And I think for a while, again, like the classic money ball idea was like, oh, it just doesn't matter. Have out ha- Art Howe be our manager because we don't care. <laughs> uh, teams aren't like that anymore. I think that the manager right. is increasingly a guy whose job it is to carry out directives of the front office and also just be sort of like a psychologist and a people manager more than anything else to get the best performances out of his players. Yeah, so so my take is right that so now front offices think that way that that it's not quite as a you know the the change in culture is only necessary when a team is severely underachieving and you think they can still contend uh, in midseason because we've seen this happen in baseball before where you you take one guy out that's toxic or you know allegedly toxic and you put in a, a guy with a different personality it happens all the time everywhere in sports but this year particularly let's look at like teams that are underachieving and there's another factor i think that that factors into this theoretically is that there's the second wild card spot so these teams that are sort of out of it aren't really out of it yet and so you can kind of you know say like oh you know we're still within reach of a potential postseason spot and also you know the standings are are pretty close in in a lot of the divisions i mean you talk about the blue jays a team that should be you know better than they are they're only six games out of first um and also they've got a guy like john gibbons in the front you know on the bench um, who's I think well respected veteran guy. You know they brought him in to to bring this team, elevate this team higher up. Um, and then like a team like the Athletics, you don't expect in the A's not to to you know contend. So you're not going to fire that you know manager. Uh, the Mariners maybe you know that's another team that I think of like they you know but you know two years in with Scott Service. Um, and then like the Giants, the Giants are a, a team like. You know, look at their standing. They're they're twelve games out. They're they're underachieving like crazy in a in a division that should be hotly contested, which it is. But they should be you know better in it. But you got Bruce Bochy at the helm. Are you really going to fire him mid season? So that you know, I, I think that also factors in. Um, I it's interesting to see that there isn't as much of that happening mid season in baseball though. I and and I think your reasoning is pretty sound. Yeah, and I think like like you said, I think it it so happens that this season a bunch of the underperforming teams are ones where, like, there's no way the Giants can fight. That would be the worst thing. Like, could you imagine right. if you were Buster Posey and you've been playing for Bruce Bochy your whole life and you've won three World Series with the guy and now you get off to one bad start in one lousy season where you underperform and now your your front office says, like, no, this isn't our guy anymore. Like, this, this and, and I don't know, you know, the, the intricacies of that particular relationship. I'm just, you know, as an example, like, 
Bochi has had so much success, right? The, the Royals are underperforming. Guess what? Ned Yost won a World Series with the Royals. Uh, the right. Mets. Terry Collins got the Mets to the World Series, right? Like that's and 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 last year got them to the playoffs when half the team was on the disabled list. Like there, you can make cases for firing all these guys, but I think probably all of those guys are fairly popular internally. And if there were a case where a team was expected to win with a new manager, with a guy who hadn't didn't have a lot of loyalty uh, under him, then then maybe it's a different story. But you know, the Cubs are not going to fire Joe Madden one season after he won their first World Series in over a hundred years because they got off to a five hundred start or whatever it is. You know, so I yeah, I just think that. Uh, I think that probably some of it is just co- is just coincidence. Like the the underperforming teams have relatively unfireable managers. I wouldn't be surprised. I think that that like Gibbons has had some has had some has been fired a few times in the past. So like I wouldn't be shocked if that happens. Uh, and then John Farrell with the Red Sox is the other guy that people seem to call for the head of all the time. I guess the Red Sox are two games out of first place and and right. charging pretty hard. Why, if you're the Red Sox front office, why are you going to risk screwing things up? Even even if there's some evidence, and I think with the Red Sox especially, there's there's some evidence that uh, you know maybe Farrell has lost some players. There was the whole incident with, with Dustin Pedroia and Manny Machado earlier this season where it just didn't seem like it was handled well throughout by the club outside of Pedroia. So unless you're saying, okay, we've got like a clubhouse mutiny on our hands and we need to can this guy... I still don't think you want to risk bothering your players and and shaking things up on on uh, when what the the issue you have is that you're two games behind the division lead in early June because everyone knows that that's plenty of time. Right, exactly. Right, and that's Farrell's the won a World of Series baseball. there too. So you know, yeah, yeah. Um, you do baseball. You got to get 162 games. Uh, so you know, you can work out the kinks very slowly. Right. Uh, so, so I think that, yeah, I think that uh, my guess is that we will see over the long term a trend away, a, a more stark trend away from in-season manager firings, uh, unless, you know, the research comes out that shows how much it helps a team. Because I just don't think, I just don't think that, I think that relationship, like I said, has gotten tighter. And so you know already that your manager and you are on the same page if you're the GM, and so there are way fewer surprises and probably, you know, way fewer... And again, these are all macho types, and everybody has little personality uh, disputes. You never know when when something arises, but I would guess that you're a lot more confident in your guy going into the season, and so you're you're probably feeling better about him in June, even if your team's not playing quite that well. Uh, The reasonable guy says that's a reasonable take. All right. Uh, Give me another question we can discuss. Well, this is a question that I debated for, oh, I don't know, a a month or two uh, that I finally got to answer on the Internet, which was um, what is the greatest Beatles song of all time? The reason that I asked it was because it's the 50th anniversary uh, last week of um, the the release of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And I took it on because last year I noticed that uh, one of our former for the Run writers had done had ranked every Bob Dylan song of all time, and I was like, "Oh, I could do that with the Beatles because I'm like a huge Beatles fan. Grew up listening, reading, dissecting, you name it, everything with the Beatles. Um, I'm I did not grow up in the era uh, of the Beatles, but you know, I don't know. I, I thought, yeah, all right, I'm going to take this on, 
And I, I wrote a whole thing where I ranked um, every song 1 to 188. And it was a blast. And uh, my answer was A Day in the Life, which is um, a song that a lot of people, I think, would say is the best song. And I tried to debate myself out of it, and I just couldn't do it. So um, that was my answer. And uh, I, I got some some folks uh, reaching out to me and debating where, where I put songs on the list, which was part of the exercise. It was quite quite a blast. I find it really hard to contend with. I feel like if someone said, like, push it, well, I feel like, to me... Most of the Beatles songs I love the most are sort of less heralded ones, but mm-hmm. it's hard to say that any of those are the best, right? Like, I would I would take issue with certain aspects of your ranking. A big one for me is that you put the single version of Revolution over the White <laughs> Album version of Revolution, and I right. just like the bluesier, uh, horn-oriented white album version just so much more i feel like the the single version is just kind of cheesy to me um, really okay and like which I, ranked it number, which I ranked it number number five by the way the, the, so for those who haven't read it which you should go click on it uh it's still on the internet uh, it seems like yeah, number, so it seems like to me number five, right. it seems like to me you favored like hits or singles a little bit and that's not sure. that's not really like the again those are not like um like Dear Prudence is maybe one of my favorite Beatles songs of all time. And that's like middle of the pack on your list. And it's not a song that I think immediately jumps out at you. It's the type of thing you have to listen to like 78 times before you're like, whoa, this is cool. Like, wait, it switches to four at the end here. And like, there's, yeah, there's right. like a bunch of different yep. th- cool things happening in there. It's like so spacey and layered. And I, yeah, like I said, like I like the, the songs I like are further out. So it's harder to argue for them as the, as the best songs. Uh, some, I will say that you underrated, um, you never give me your money is an all timer for me. Uh, as well as like Great song. it's a fantastic song. I have no that I cannot argue, you know argue with, but we'll get to that in a second. Go ahead, tell me what other gripes you had. Um, she came in through the bathroom window is a song I really like. I'm I'm also biased by songs I've covered in different bands. So like, because <laughs> um, a lot of my Beatles, I mean, well, like you, I grew up like almost exclusively listening to the Beatles. Uh, in the past 15 years, a lot of my Beatles experience has been like sort of, I, I don't know, and, and I know you've you've perform music in plenty of different arenas as well so you probably understand this experience when you're when you're playing a song it's a much different way of interacting with the song than when you're just listening to it and so for me a lot of what makes a song appealing is just like how much room there is for interpretation uh in the song itself and in in the music uh so uh a song like um What's if I fell in love with you? Like that is like sort of a cheesy song in the Beatles version, but then like there are like a bunch of really cool arrangements of that song because the melody is kind of really interesting. Um, Yeah. So so I'm I'm hard pressed to say my favorite Beatles song. Uh, Like I said, "You Never Give Me Your Money" is one that jumps out. And another one, and again, there's like there's no way you can make the case that this is the best Beatles song ever. But "Happiness Is a Warm Gun" is another song I absolutely love, I, and I rank that pretty high. I thought, yeah. and I love it. I adore that song. I, yeah, it's it's brilliant. Um, um, yeah. What is what were the ones that people said? No, you're wrong. This is the best song. 
Um, nobody ever, I, nobody really said, the funny thing is the reaction to this was something very unexpected, um, for me. And I actually was, I was waiting for sort of the hammer to come down from, from Twitter, just everybody going, you're wrong. You're the worst, you know, go home. You're, you know, whatever. Um, it, and that didn't happen. A lot of the reaction that I got was what a feat. And I thought that was so fascinating. I was like, I, I never thought about that. Like it wasn't a feat. I was just like ranking the songs as I, I took them. My criteria kind of were like, how, like, comp- I don't know, there were a bunch of different criteria, but at the end of the day, it was sort of like great melody, complexity, lyrically, how is it, you know, there were certain songs I, I pointed out that were, like, really great um, musically, but not great lyrically, like, everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey, which is just um, rockin', but it's the, the lyrics are kind of, what you know, whatever. Um, like, why don't we do it in the road? Another cutoff of the White Album that's like... See, to me, why yeah. don't we do it in the road is, like, one of the worst Beatles songs. Right. See, okay. I find it horribly irritating. Do you? Okay. So, but to me, like you know, like listening to Paul like hollering to a microphone doing a blues number, it's like ah, you know, there's some appeal to that. So there were a few songs like "Hey Bulldog," which is a song that I know that like is a deep cut that Beatles fans I think think they they sort of revere it. It's one of the cuts off of um, "Yellow Submarine." Um, I think I ranked it too low at, in hindsight because there were a few people who called me out for it. Um, they said it was like a hundred. I, th- I think it was. I, and now, of course, my computer's frozen, so I can't quite look at it. But I know it was somewhere in the hundreds, maybe somewhere like hundred and fourteen to hundred forty-four. For Hey Bulldog, yeah, it was one forty-four. There you go, one forty-four. Right. So somebody's like, "Where the heck are you going with that?" Like, and that's pretty low. Um, and that's a song that kind of rocks. But I was like, "It's, it's. I don't know. Lyrically, meh." You know, that was sort right. of my, my take on it. And that's a song that, you know, I know that as a younger person, I was like, ooh, this song kind of rocks, you know, like this is kind of the Beatles getting kind of, you know, dirty rock kind of kind of take. Um, so that was a song that I definitely felt like a lot of people called me out for and probably justifiably so, because um, it's also a song like Dave Grohl loves, I know, of, of Nirvana and Foo Fighters fame. And, and I don't know, um, I tried really hard to like, unbiased myself that way but you know when you think about like Dave Grohl like loves that song you think like oh man like what am I missing out on here um well I'm glad glad you said unbiased because like part of the problem with this or or so I guess part of the challenge with doing this is that I feel like so many people especially people like raised anywhere in North America or Europe you have such deeply personal connections to Beatles songs so like I don't happen to think that in my life or something or hey jude are like excellent beatles songs but you've got them two three four but Mm -hmm. i i also have like deeply personal connections for various reasons to all three of those songs like real life moments attached to those songs that Mm -hmm. so i can't like i can't get on a podcast and be like no you don't in my life that's a like what what kind of heartless bastard would try to tell you that (laughs) in my life is a bad song like i do i think it's a little bit cheesy right but i but it's beautiful it's and like and like a lot of times like like and this was something again just to referring to so among other things uh my band in college played all of Abbey Road uh, for Halloween, which is like a, a thing we sort of ripped off from Fish. That's but, Fish, right? Um, That's yeah, totally Fish. <laughs> but we had we had some big fish. I wasn't a big Fish guy, but we had two guys in our band who loved Fish, and I liked I liked the Beatles enough, and like playing all that always was a cool idea to me. Playing a whole album, uh, and I remember doing it. And when we were doing it, when we were like figuring out all the songs, like one of one of my one of my bandmates was like, "Man, this is such textbook stuff," and I was like, "Guys, like this 
this is the textbook, right? This like is this the is, of course, yeah. it's textbook stuff. Like this is the Beatles, and so you can say like, oh, in my life, that's like a it's a really cheesy, uh, like you know, really cheesy rock song, rock ballad. But that's like sort of the fundamental of cheesy rock ballad. Yeah, they invented it basically, right? Um, one other thing that I've noticed you you talked about. You said you never give me your money, and she came through the bathroom window. Um, one. Thing that those I are the two, the two great, uh, two of the like the real rockers to me on Abbey Road. Right. So, so the the other interesting thing that's come out of this is that I said to myself, okay, if I'm going to do all the songs, I can't like cheat like everybody else and say, oh, the the Abbey Road uh, medley, you know, starting with "You Never Give Me Your Money" and yeah. ending with the end. They all rank them as one chunk song, and I was like, nope, no, because you can't put Polythene Pam anywhere near the top ten, you know? <laughs> exactly, right, exactly. So I, I challenged myself to that, and then as soon as I I published it, uh, somebody was like, dude, you like, you know, what ended up happening is you 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 underset like the saturation. You like sort of lose the fact that the whole medley together is one amazing thing. So when you know you disperse them. You know, various points in the thing, you sort of you lose the fact that like that medley altogether is one of the best things the Beatles ever did. And it's like, yeah, that is a very good point. So that's kind of a, another thing that that came out of this this list. But uh, again, you know, uh, you know, people have takes on this. Would love to hear them. That the part of the joy of doing this was like, yeah, everybody loves the Beatles and you know loves certain songs of their own. I mean, I, I'm partial to certain songs that I definitely underranked knowing almost that i was partial to those songs give me some of those myself. what are some songs that you wished you could have put higher martha my dear i actually ranked it pretty high for i think where it you know it is as a song but that is just a song that i i've played a thousand billion times on my old cd player and just i i love i'm a paul guy uh, a lot of people you know have one beetle that they sort of gravitate toward and you know i i i'm, I'm like jazz so you know a lot of paul songs speak to me um that's a song that i'm like i just love it i love the progression of it i love the arrangement of it um you know it's just a random song off of Mar off of um uh, the white album and, and it's just i don't know it's a song that i love more than other people do um michelle which i ended up posting pretty decently high um that's a song that i love again another paul jazzy french you know feeling tune that's another, another song another song that could be covered in like a thousand different ways yeah know? exactly and totally interp interpretable, I guess would be the the word. Um, that's you know, so some of those deeper cuts, yeah, there are definitely some deeper Beatles cuts that I am a huge, huge fan of. That I, you know, the the funny thing was the bottom five for me was so easy that I was like, oh, this is you know, at least that's the easy part. I know which songs are, are just not great songs to begin with. Right. Uh, well, there's so few. Uh, you know, there are so few ones, and, and there's so also so few Beatles songs that it's like I don't really even know this song. You know, there there it's right, like right. it's like you have the whole catalog down. Like it's like the whole catalog. Like the top 100 songs on this list are still regularly on the radio. You know, which is nuts. Um, I was I was gonna I want to move on, but I am I'm I was my next point I was gonna make, and I was hoping we might get hotter takes. But you just said it. You said you're a Paul guy. I was going to ask you to rank the Beatles because yeah. I was preparing to rope-a-dope you with my take that Paul is the top Beatle because I feel like while Paul McCartney was like, you know, the co-lead singer and co-songwriter of the Beatles, I feel like in today's world, especially among like hipster music people, he is wildly underrated as a Beatle. I, it's funny you say that because I think yeah John became the sort of the the you know a lot of people um, I know are John people um, I know one George person which is kind of fascinating too um, 
Oh, and there I, was a there's a ton of George Harrison, like, and not that George Harrison's not a great musician, great guitarist. No, no, no. Like, and again, it's not to knock John Lennon, right? It's just that to me, like, Paul McCartney wrote many of the best songs and clearly the most underrated instrumentalist in the group. Well, exactly, because he was a guitarist until he had to take on the bass, and he had to. And then you start hearing sort of bass tracks um, later on in the Beatles' career, and you go, whoa, like, dude is a genius. Like, dude, you know, I, I'd throw, let's you know, not throw that word around lightly, but the guy... Oh, he's Paul McCartney. I, he's the lead singer of the Beatles. I think that's fair, you know? Them. Yes, exactly. But I think, I think you know, you know I, it's like children. I love them for different reasons. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you my, my hottest take. Uh, about the Beatles is Ringo Starr is the most underrated Beatle because the guy invented he's a timekeeper he's a he's he, he's a metronome he's a human metronome the guy can do anything and then his drumming gets even better something that I've noticed as I've gotten older is that I started noticing drumming more um, mm-hmm. and reading more about you know drummers like Keith Moon is one of those examples where I was like I don't get why there's hype about Keith Moon and then I started listening to the drumming in 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 who song Keith and I was Moon like, is a really cool drummer he is all he's a, he's over the place wild, yeah he's drumming he's he's like a soloist who's right. drumming and so you think about that like Ringo Starr is an unbelievably good drummer and also you know certain you know tracks you, you you hear it stand out more and you go wow like this guy is really a king and and so you know I don't think people give him enough credit I also um, you know, said Octopus's Garden was one of the worst songs the Beatles recorded. I stand by that, um, but that's no offense uh, to Ringo. Worst I, song the Beatles re- ever recorded was Maxwell Silverhammer, which again I, I have like a I have a personal connection to, but that is a horrible song. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was. It's not great. It's that it's was the not- song we used to sing on road trips to torture the rest of my family. <laughs> that's another podcast. We should we should go over songs like that, but we can we can do that another time. Um, yeah, I, I think. I'll, I'll accept the take that Ringo is underrated. I think people beat up on him as like, oh, least talented Beatle, but that's like saying, you know, like you're like, yeah, it's like being the worst member of the Warriors starting five, right? There it's, you uh, go. They're right, a super exactly. team. They're a super team. And just because the drumming, and I think as they became more production heavy and more George Martin heavy, a lot of times the drumming sort of took a back seat in the music. But yeah, like you said, like when it, when they need it, it's there. Uh, I'm still a I'm still a Paul McCartney guy. I just like you said, the bass parts to me are so good and so like they just they form such a strong part of the backbone of the music. And I don't think anyone ever pays attention to an, to them. And I also think that his bass tone itself is uh, among the best I am aware of. It's just like mm. such a, uh, I don't know, it's a, it's a hard thing to describe. But like, again, while playing the bass, that was like always what I was trying to get was like something like, I was like in my head, it was like, I want to sound like a sort of a more contemporary version of the Paul McCartney tone where it's like so low end and so sort of, it's clean, but it's it's still crisp, but it's like a very bassy sound to it. Uh, sort of like a, like it almost has like a little bit of an upright bass uh, timbre to it, but still undoubtedly, you know, rock bass. Uh, I always just thought it was so awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll, I'll leave with one track you should listen to if you want to listen to good bass from Paul McCartney is Getting Better off of Sgt. Pepper. Mm-hmm. I mean, bass line in that is... You know, I, I'm I'm humming that usually when I hear that song. So yeah. Uh, the other one to me is uh, "End Your Bird Can Sing," which is like not a uh, terrifically great song, not but great a, song, but right. a great bass part, uh, really cool bass part. Uh, anyway, let's, let's go on. I got another question for you. 
uh, which is, I forgot who was going to ask this question. Oh, uh, this is the question. I And I brought it up with Hamill, but she said no. So have you seen Master of None? Heck yes, I have. How good is this show? It's the best show. It, 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 the second season of that show, it ranks in my mind among some of the best TV I've ever watched. I, and I, I, I would unabashedly say that because it was riveting. It was beautiful. I love Woody Allen. So like I automatically came in going and I love season one. Let, let's start there. Um, it's also biased for me because I'm a New Yorker, grew up a New Yorker. Um, you know, it's a show that is undoubtedly Woody Allen-esque, New York, full of food, um, very funny, very poignant, and also, you know, it had some of that that beautiful stuff in Italy in it. Uh, so, you know, all around A plus television. Can't wait to see what they'll do for season three. Left it off in a cliffhanger. We can talk about that if you want to warn people at spoilers. But yeah, uh, did watch, loved it. Can't wait for the third season. Yeah, season I don't want to. I don't want to get too into the like the spoiler aspect of it. Uh, the points I'll make, like so. You mentioned Woody Allen. Like, clearly, there's a lot of Woody Allen in the show. Um, I don't think he's hiding it. There's also, like, a lot of... Uh, um, actually, and, and it's funny, because there are a few things I hate more than uh, Italian neorealist cinema, as I've brought, up, <laughs> I've brought up on this show before. I took a class in it in grad school, and just, like, that stuff puts me asleep instantly. But, uh, yeah, uh, cool. a lot... They're, they're, it's like one of my least favorite movies of all time, and I know that's like blasphemy in cinema, but it bores me to death. Uh, I, would well, I understand that. Yeah. Uh, La Aventura, which is one of the ones, which is what he's watching on Netflix in, mm-hmm. in the show, and which is like clearly the, the, an influence on this season, uh, is a, just an outright awful thing to watch. Like, it just, I, I remember, like, you, I could wake up at 9 a.m. and drink five cups of coffee and turn that on, and I would be asleep in five minutes. It's just. I don't know. It just was not good to me. Um, but he he made that style really good. Like, and and I I would also add uh, the woman who plays the Italian girl, like the Italian woman, is like what a phenomenal acting job in that yes. scene, right? Like, just like wow, that that like this not no with and with. I don't mean to put the show down, but like that's a star, right? She's gonna be a star. I think she's a star in Italy, actually. If, uh, she's going to be she's going to be an international superstar. Like, if you want to, if you yeah. want to make a call like that, like, not that she's too good for Master of None because it was so good that, uh, like, it was just I would just credit like someone was doing really good talent scouting there. But like, my God, was that a good <laughs> like the ever the whole season was extremely well acted, extremely well written. But to me, she just sort of stood out as like a, a especially considering she's not a native English speaker. Uh, just like that, that was pretty incredible. It was, and and I I'm I, I kind of want to try to sort of figure out what makes this show so good and on shows like it because uh, we've seen this happen now in recent years. The the sort of the rise of the it's Louis, uh, you know, kind of two point. Well, it's a lot it's, it's, like it, Louis. It's a lot like Louis, but it it's, I would say like a little less cynical, right? And like a little bit yeah. more hopeful. And so, it, like, it feels better to watch than Louis. And also, so it had Louis has had a bunch of like four and five episode arcs, I think. But this was like they have. the contained season was so good as like a serialized story which i don't know that louis has ever really had that 
They've had it, yeah, here and there, bits and pieces. And I think they've they've sort of run a loose string through certain parts of the series, mm-hmm. like like Pam, for example. You know, his right. sort of his his on and off or whatever you want to call it with you know uh, with her. But like, yeah, the appeal of a show like this to try to explain it to people who haven't seen it. I and I try to do it sometimes. You know, oh, have you watched Master of None? No, I haven't. You need to do it right now. And I try to explain it's it's the the beauty of this this comedian playing an actor and and but also exploring all kinds of issues that sort of typical i put in scare quotes tv which we can sort of throw out the window now i guess you know sort of regularized t- uh, network tv that was from 10 years ago didn't deal with doesn't deal with sometimes even now and i think the the combination of both the the poignant you know storylines with the comedy of it it's it's a, it's a really nice little package uh the second episode i think of the first season it was another just like an, a classic standalone one when they both are complaining about their dads and it shows all yes. the stuff their dads went through to like get to america and and raise them uh that's a that's a, like so uh, we should move on because it's weird to talk about the show in case a lot of people listening haven't watched it but if you were because right. this is what i'm struggling with because my wife hasn't watched it and i'm i need her to see the second season because I want to talk about it with her. Um, should someone who hasn't watched it yet, while the first season was good, should the, someone who hasn't watched it yet bother with the first season or just jump right into the second season? I say yes, only because it's still quality television. I, you know, this, the first season, while it isn't as um, heavy, I want to say, as the second season, it still kind of gives you a really good intro into it with you know his friends and his family and his parents and and sort of some of the issues that yeah, then like come his up. Yeah, love life, you know, know like, yeah. I, yeah, I wouldn't avoid. You know, there's no reason not to to watch it. You know, if I'm saying to somebody, well, what about with someone binge. someone with limited time? Say someone who works like seventy hour mm-hmm. weeks, right? Like if you. I'm- yeah, I, I'll I'll say you don't need to, but you should. I think that watching reasonable? the second season is probably going to make you want to watch the first season more than making the first season going to make you want to watch the second season. That's a yeah. That I think that's a good way of putting it. All right, uh, ask me another question. Uh, I think this is our final question. Yeah. Yes. Um, the the question is, uh, Ted Berg, would you hang out at a Nashville Margaritaville with the the Ryan brothers, Rex and Rob Ryan? I'm going to go with hell yes, I would. Yes. Um, the correct answer is hell yes. There is no other answer than well, hell if yes. You're, maybe not if you're like a woman in sandals. But if you're a dude, <laughs> I would say you should absolutely bro it down with the Ryans <laughs> in their what appears to be their their natural element, which is a Nashville Margaritaville restaurant. Yes. Well, yeah. The story goes right that that they were uh, that there was a little incident filmed there allegedly involving uh, Rex and Rob hanging out there. I mean, there it's, well, it's not. It's, it was definitely them, and it was. No, definitely, it definitely happened, right? Yeah, happening. I, I mean, you could see it on video, right? Like, I I don't know what what started it, nor do I know that there was like anything. I mean, people push and shove sometimes, right? Like, I'm not I'm not about to get on my high horse and be like Rob Ryan needs to be better than that. Does anyone expect <laughs> Rob Ryan to be better than that? Come on. Right. So, but yeah, there was clearly some pushing and shoving happening in the Nashville Margaritaville. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the best thing about about the the Ryan brothers is a this didn't surprise uh, a soul. I mean, these are guys who every time there's a story about them, and, and this has happened frequently over the years. There's a story about the twin brothers of you know of one of the all time great defensive coaches in the NFL, and and they are. There's old video of them you should go and click on soon. There's an interview with them from, like, I want to say 30, 40 years ago, whatever it is. Um, 
and they're just like these broy bros who are like constantly getting at each other and the stories are that like they beat each other up constantly and they oh i don't know they had all kinds of escapades as young people and it's just great to see that they still are doing it and they still are like the same ryan brothers that they're just all grown up and i you know i was a huge fan of rex ryan when he was in with the jets oh yeah the ravens too he was just such a great personality and a great coach um but to see when he was um in new york it was just a delight because he'd say some really funny stuff he's always laid back on the podium and everyone would always joke that he would win press conferences which is true he did win a lot of press conferences um most of them but that guy is a rarity in the nfl you know i think nfl coaches are so buttoned down and i always ask this question of myself is like if there's somebody i want to have a drink with and just hang out and hear some awesome stories like i secretly want to do it with bill belichick but i keep forgetting that rex ryan's on the table like that would be the best time ever. What kind of stories would he tell? You know, would Rob show up? You know, what would happen? It, it, so, yeah, it, this is uh, – they're the best. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you 100%. Like, I, there's – I feel like the Ryan brothers are thoroughly unapologetic for being the Ryan brothers. It's like, this is who we are. I'm a, you know, big jelly fat guy who sometimes gets drunk at an MMA event and gives Miami Dolphins fans the finger. And I look like Thor if he really let himself go. And, <laughs> and that's their deal. And, like, they're going to go out and party. And, like, yeah, like, they're going to hang out at Margaritaville. Like, could you – Could like, what – I mean, just – I get that, like, there's that's obviously a popular restaurant chain. People must go there. But like, if if you go to if you go to Nashville and you're like, where of all the places we're gonna hang out in Nashville? Like, hey, let's go to this chain owned by Jimmy Buffett. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I and, and that would be the last place, you know, because I, I know Nashville. Uh, it would be know, the last place I would want to go in any circumstance in which I was not hanging out with the Ryan brothers. <laughs> But like yeah, exactly. maybe so, the yeah, first well, place I'd yeah. want to go with the Ryan brothers. Like, all right, guys. Uh, like, yeah. TGI, enjoy yourselves, boy. TGI Fridays it is, and we are and we are going endless apps. <laughs> or or um uh, uh Buffalo Wild Wings. That's that's you know, but that's that's less party. That's more food. You know, because uh, you I imagine. I feel like they again, can probably eat pretty well. <laughs> I mean, my thing is, uh, you know, Margaritaville, uh, you know, there there are a lot of Jimmy Buffett fans out there. So maybe that is a destination for people if they're like, you know, it's a brand. The guy is a brand. You know, he's got his own beer. He's got his own um, shirt line, I think. Right. Or, you know, he should if he doesn't. Um, I'm sure he uh, does. Yeah. I'm sure they're Hawaiian shirts and they're 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 very, you know, very, very loose fitting, you know. Um, uh, <laughs> but, you know, maybe the Brian brothers like, oh, Margaritaville, like Jimmy Buffett, like, you know, great brand. We we know we're going to have a blast. I mean, it is. Oh, there's no Jimmy. doubt the Ryan brothers like Jimmy Buffett. That's how they that's how they kick back and, and unwind. Oh, it's sad, isn't that? Uh, well, we can save that for another podcast. But yeah. yes. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think uh, it was the perfect place for them. And uh, uh, party. It must have been a great party, uh, even though it, it ended or it involved fisticuffs. Right. 
I think that that we're on the same page there. Uh, you can check out everything Charles does at well, not everything he does, but everything he writes uh, on at for the win at ftw.usa.com. He's on Twitter at by Charles Curtis. I am also on the internet. You could find it all over the place. Uh, Google is your friend in in both of these instances. You can check out the For the Win podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, all of those places, and of course at For the Win ftw.usa.com. Charles, uh, thanks as always for joining me. Yeah, it was a blast as always, and thanks for having me on. Peace out.